Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, Nixon. Most candidates we've had have had some identity politics stuff in their campaign. So I'm not sure how easy it is to run the campaign of the pluribus. Oh, no. I think that is more rarely done than we think. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat a four-time populist like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. As you know, I usually start this podcast with a take on the world, something that I've been thinking about, trying to puzzle through. Today, I want to start with a much smaller puzzle. I've been so much enjoying doing this podcast and seeing the audience grow. I thought I would just do this for my own purposes with friends in the studio. And now we have a big global audience. And I've been really keen to meet some of you. And so I'm thinking about trying to do a live podcast or two in the coming months. No promises here, but I'm thinking of doing it in D.C. or New York or both. And I just want to get a sense of whether you would be interested in that. So to help me figure out whether this is a worthwhile enterprise, if you think that you might come out to hear, to see a live podcast in New York or D.C. or some other city, please tweet at me at Yasha underscore Monk, Y-A-S-C-H-A, underscore M-O-U-N-K, sharing something you like about The Good Fight and telling me which city you might want to come and see a live episode at. Thank you very much, and I hope to actually meet some of you IRL in real life. I'm really excited today to be joined by Perry Bacon Jr. I've known Perry for a long time. We were both fellows at New America. He's now a senior political writer at 538.com, giving really great insights sort of day-to-day about what's going on in our politics, trying to analyze the data behind it and make sense of these developments. But the thing that I've really enjoyed about our conversation is that I think we really sat down together to think about some of the more long-term things, to figure out how it is that race and identity matters in this political moment and how it is that we can talk about it in a more productive way. It's, it's honestly one of my favorite conversations on the podcast this far, and I hope you'll give it a listen. Welcome to the podcast, Perry. Of course. Thanks for having me. Listen, so one of the things that you've been thinking about that I've really been struggling to understand is... To what degree is Trump actually being effective in what he's doing? So, you know, I really go back and forth on this because a bunch of weeks ago he said that he's ahead of schedule in terms of implementing his agenda, right? And it's easy to mock that because when you go back to what he was saying on the campaign trail, he was saying that in the first 100 days he'd have all this landmark legislation passed, he would have destroyed everything to do with Obama completely, right? And clearly he hasn't done that. At the same time, I think with the glee that people sort of responded to that, with, ha-ha, you haven't done anything, maybe a little ill-advised as well, in part because he's made some real changes. And in part because when you look at, you know, how long it took populists in other countries to make real changes, um, it took them a while, a year, two years, into the administrations of Vladimir Putin in Russia, of Recep Erdogan in Turkey, of Viktor Orban in Hungary. Outside observers were like, look, things are going okay. Turkey is bringing you know, a Muslim version of Christian democracy to Turkey, and he's deepening democratic rule in the country, right? Well, that didn't turn out to be true, but but a year or two in, really smart people thought it was. So I, I go back and forth in terms of, you know, is Trump just flailing and he's clearly pretty incompetent and like nothing much is going to come out of any of this? Or, or are we actually missing how much of an impact he's having? 
I go back and forth too. My general inclination is we in Washington focus too much on bills passed through Congress. So if you have that measure of what is Trump doing through big bills passed through Congress, and he's doing, then he's been struggling a lot. Like the health care bill failed, obviously. The tax bill is not going very far. He's got very little beyond Gorsuch appointed in terms of big things through Congress. But I think that's the wrong measure. If you're looking at him in a really broad way, Look at what Scott Pruitt is doing to environmental regulations. Look at how they've handled Obamacare. Even in terms of he's not necessarily got us out of the Iran deal, but we're definitely not in it the way we were six months ago. I, I think if you think about him as – remember Bannon talked about this idea in March about we're going to disrupt the administrative state. Hmm. I really think a lot of federal employees are on edge. The, the work that they're doing is not what it used to be. So I think in terms of the government of the country, which is, through, which is done through the agencies as much as through – the president, I think the agencies have been affected very meaningfully, very early in a very important way. I think the federal government is just doing less, hiring fewer people. And I think that's an intentional effort. And I think, you know, State Department doesn't have doesn't have the staffing it used to. I think these things do matter. And I think Trump, if you're thinking about having the government do less, have these unelected bureaucrats, the deep state, as he would call them, if you want to, like, stifle them, I think that's happening in a big way. And then in terms of the sort I would call the sort of culture war stuff, I think it's hard to look whether NFL players stand or kneel or what have you do in the national level is not the most important issue in the world. But I do think he's like making every if the country's already polarized along racial, demographic, and partisan lines, he's accentuating that. He's making every issue that, you know. And he has a real impact on people's views on, yes, on, on those lines, right? I mean, the, most, the most shocking poll that I've seen over the course of the last year, I think, is about the NFL. And basically, sort of Trump supporters obviously used to have mostly a favorable view of the NFL, you know, over two-thirds favorable, about 20% unfavorable. And now this is just flipped. And over two-thirds of Trump supporters now have an unfavorable view of the NFL. So he may not be popular in the country at large, but he certainly is capable of taking his base with him on anything. He's capable of taking them with him on hating American football. Right. The, the one that I saw, I think it was like last November, so almost a year ago, was how Republican views on Vladimir Putin oh, yes. uh, went way up. His favorability ratings went way up right after the election. And that because Trump was not willing to criticize him and was praising him to some extent. Yeah, I do think that kind of polarization. And then in terms of the sort of remember the David Frum piece, I think it was a January that published Will America Become an Autocracy Under Donald Trump? That was a piece that I read and initially was like, whoa, this seems like very likely to happen. If you think about it today, it seems at the beginning of it, when I first thought about that today, I was like, ah, that's really far from happening. If you reread, it seems exaggerated. But I think you're right. We're very early on. We have the president basically saying NBC News should have his license taken away. And yeah, you know, we think about that as being sort of, ah, he's just making these weird threats. It's frivolous. Four years from now, if he's not, you know, taking powers away from the media directly, is he... I really think their war on institutions from the Congressional Budget Office to the press to the FBI is meaningful and matters. And if we have eight years of that, will really matter. And that's sort of two questions there, right? Like one question that people asked at the beginning was, well, so how likely is it that Trump will actually do all of those things once he's in office? Won't he moderate once he's in office? Won't he grow into the responsibilities of, of the duties of a president of the United States? Won't he start to say, well, you know what, I need to be a little bit more respectful towards institutions. I can't continually incite passions. That's a campaign thing. I'm not going to do it once I'm president of all Americans. I think that question has been answered definitively, right? But anybody who still hopes out, holds out hope for Trump growing into the office isn't even 
sort of naive or just delusional. Well, let me make one pushback might be, okay. whatever you think about this, he did replace Steve Bannon and Ryan's Priebus and people who I would argue were sort of weird picks for, to run the government and didn't have any real experience with them. He has basically put the government in charge, General Kelly, Mattis. He has if not changed, at least adapted in one sense. But nothing has changed, nothing once, has he's, changed. once he's changed for his people, That's right? I mean, so any yes. view that sort of his race-baiting was right. just That's Bannon yes. sort of being his little puppet master. He is well, Bannon original. is no longer puppet mastering. What's the word? <laughs> uh, puppet mastering, puppeteering, I don't know. And yet, the effect is the same. I mean, all of the NFL stuff, all of the Puerto Rico stuff, even most of the Charlottesville stuff came after Bannon left. I've gotten a lot of things wrong in the rise of Trump these last two years. One thing I got right was when Bannon left, I wrote a piece saying, Bannon is leaving, nothing is changing. The real nationalist is not Steve Bannon. The chief strategist is not Steve Bannon. Donald Trump believes in this stuff. He's going to keep doing it. And now you're seeing all these pieces about how, oh, it's Stephen Miller who's really causing this stuff. No, Donald Trump is the nationalist in the White House. That seems right. But the other question is, you know, how far can you take that stuff, right? And and there again, I'm I'm, I'm really split because— it's so tempting to say, well, all of this Twitter stuff and like he has us down, right? Like he knows exactly how to throw us into a tizzy. He just like has to get up and tweet something outrageous and we obsess about it for the last 48 hours. And perhaps sometimes it's used strategically for distraction. I'm a little unsure about that. We I don't think he does r- anything strategically. But, so you know, but anyway, like I, I get the argument for not taking his Twitter seriously, right? Perhaps right. you just ignore it and focus on stuff that really matters, like his attacks on Obamacare or But then I'm thinking, well, you know, when you see how much influence he does have over his base, how he's managed to make people hate the NFL, perhaps those are preparatory steps, not even in a very conscious way, but they are preparing the ground for actual attacks on those institutions. So once you've been tweeting for half a year about perhaps we should just take NBC's license away, perhaps you do actually have your appointees at the FCC start to really crack down on certain media companies. And at that point, it won't seem as crazy to us as it would have done two months ago. And obviously, we'll protest, we'll go and, right. you know, rally around the embassy offices with, like, nice plaquettes and so on. But but little by little, he can create a world in which part of his base is okay with that, in which part of Republican senators in Congress don't react against it as crazily as they would if it, like, had happened three months ago without any prior warning. So, again, it's a sort of gestalt switch thing, right? You know, one of those pictures you look at and you can see two different ways. Like, one way I look at it, it's like, well, he's just, tweeting about that stuff, nothing is ever going to happen, chill out. The other way I look at it is, well, a year or two into the rule of Erdogan and Putin, all of those people, we thought, well, they talk some crazy shit, but in the end, they're not really doing anything. Let's not worry about it. And actually, in retrospect, it's really obvious that this is preparing ground. So I don't know what to make of it. Look, I don't know as much about like the start of Putin's rule as you would, but the one thing I would say is, and I think you're right about this, is that one thing I think we misunderstand is to some extent is some of these authoritarian tendencies of Trump's were already a little bit in the Republican Party. The sort of attacks on the media, Trump is just doing an exaggerated, more heightened version of what Nixon did to some extent, what Reagan did at times too. Like there's already been some votes in Congress basically to take away powers from the Congressional Budget Office. I'm focused on that because the CBO is like the media bit, is a bit of a scorekeeper, an independent agency. And you can tell the media is going to be harder to take on, I would argue, in America than in other countries. He might get there. But I think there was a vote in Congress earlier this year that failed, but Basically, the whole Freedom Caucus and much of the House voted to change how the CBO works in a way that suggests they don't really value that independent arbiter. And I think you're going to see more tax institutions like that as we go forward. And you see that on electoral things, right? I mean, to me, the most shocking thing in some levels in what happened in U.S. politics for the last two or three years 
was the developments in North Carolina after the last election, in which they basically rewrote the office and the duties of the office of the governor of North Carolina because the Democrat wanted, you know, the outgoing legislature. And that wasn't Trumpist particularly. That was the relatively traditional GOP of North Carolina. Now, one thing that I'm also trying to think through is, you know, when you look at polls, um, Americans are worried about immigration. They have critical views of certain parts of immigration, but actually on the whole, they have a pretty positive view of immigration. They have a pretty positive view even of ethnic diversity, certainly when you compare it to Europe. So there's one really interesting question that I think Pew Global asked, which was about, you know, do you think more diversity, not just diversity, more diversity is a good or bad thing for your country? You know, in Germany, Italy, Sweden, everywhere, you know, small percentage of people say it's a good thing. In the United States, a majority did, Right. So Americans are not white nationalists. I mean, there are obviously Americans who are white nationalists, but most of them are not. And yet that is the base that Trump keeps playing to and keeps rallying. So is that a mistake? I mean, was he elected in spite of having such a radical view on those issues? Or did that actually help him get elected? In my view, if you look at the rep- people who vote in the Republican primary. That was an audience that was primed for one person to run as an anti-immigration candidate and win. And so then at that point, do I think a large percentage of Americans have these views? No, but I think some large percentage of the Republican primary electorate does. You know, I don't think Donald Trump has won the general election because of his immigration stance. I think he won it because he was, in some ways, because he was a Republican who was not Hillary Clinton. And that's kind of... Okay, so he, so he won the primaries because of his immigration that's what stance. I would argue is his, yeah. And then once you were the Republican candidate in 2016, after eight years of a Democrat incumbent right. in the White House and a very unpopular Democratic candidate, you had a shot at the White House, even for the things you had to do in the primaries to win, actually turning people off. That's what I would argue. In my my view, at least, and maybe this, and we can have some discussion about this. John Kasich or Mark Rubio maybe may have won the general election by more and more comfortably. And I think the kind of identification of Trump, Trump's views as being somewhat racist, I would think was a was a problem. Not a you know, not I don't mean to say that his rhetoric around his immigration stances themselves. We can debate you know where they are, but his, his rhetoric, particularly, I thought was probably the rapist Mexicans things. I don't think that helped him win the general election, but the primary, I think it did. So I feel as if when I watch TV and. So on. I'm not surprised that Americans say that they love diversity. I think it's become one of those things like when you ask people, do you, would you vote for a woman president? Do you want your daughter to be married to someone who's Latino? I mean, I think it's maybe getting into one of those questions that polling is maybe not the best way to ascertain true views of. Do you, what do you think about that? Diversity yeah, becomes I mean, a I think prize I, in a certain way. It's like a word you right. can't be opposed to. I mean, I think there's certainly sort of, you know, in the same way in which perhaps there were shy Trump voters for that actually, you know, it's not clear that the 2016 election was explained by shy Trump voters yes. particularly, right? But but there's certainly a plausible theory that there right. were shy Trump voters, right? And the same way, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's sort of shy racists, right? Yes. I don't necessarily associate racism racist, with shyness. But, but yeah, yeah, but shy worrying about immigration. Yeah, right, yeah right. No, that's more accurate. You're right. I would say that actually, yeah, I'm not an expert on this, but, but I think there are some innovative polling techniques for trying okay, to do that and have catchy. some sense that they still show a big difference between okay. Europe and the United States. Okay, right? okay. And I do think even when you ask people sort of like, what do you think makes an American? Which I think is a slightly less charged question. Right? You write that diversity is the sort of catchword. Very, very, very few people say, you know, ethnicity has something to do right. with, with being an American. And it's not clear to me that, that actually in that context, saying, yeah, I think ethnicity has something to do with being an American. If people believe that, that doesn't sound to people like that's immediately racist. I mean, it may actually be I don't think that people would have the same shyness about saying that. So so when I look at all of the different polls that I've seen on this question, 
I'm sure it underestimates the degree to which people are uncomfortable with this. And certainly, I remember that in the 2012 election, something like 40% of people said immigration was one of the most important issues. And in this election, it was more like 70%, yes. right? So there's certainly some discomfort there. And there's certainly a lot of people who feel the country is changing too fast. I'm not sure about certainly undocumented immigrants and right. so on. But having lived both in Europe and here, okay. I just think that there's a natural way in which Americans, at least in parts of a country and in certain milieus, think of somebody as American, even if they're Asian, even if they're Latin American, even if they're black. That just would never be the case in Germany, even among elites. I mean, in Germany, you go to elites, they might have positive views even of people okay. with different skin colors or whatever, but they would never really think of them as German. Now, I think we are debating to some extent with Trump if you're an American, if people view you as American, if you speak Spanish primarily or if you are Muslim. Those are the two things that I think Trump has played into some is that those things – People are not necessarily comfortable with, you know, this is a country that speaks. I think Trump, I remember, I remember in the campaign, it was a great, it was a very interesting moment where I think Jeb Bush spoke Spanish somewhere. And then oh, the next yeah, debate, yeah. Trump was like, we speak English here. I don't know why. It was like very, I was sort of jarred by a cameo. Obviously, Jeb Bush speaks English just fine. So it was very, it was a very jarring moment. It reminded me of Trump is doing something that's different right now. I mean, I'm actually surprised in certain ways. I mean, I mean one difference between Trump that hasn't been discussed quite enough, I think. So, I mean, when you think of sort of a traditional Republican racist dog whistle strategy that's been well implemented for a number of decades, it really was primarily about African-Americans. Yes. Sometimes perhaps a little bit about Latinos, but that's not, it's called the Southern strategy for a reason, right? right? People in the South are worried more about blacks than they are about Latinos because there's not that many Latinos there and so on, right? I mean, so like, that's really sort of where the Republican wheelhouse was. Now, Trump obviously is very willing to pick culture wars over race. And the NFL and all of those kinds of things have been like a prime example of that. But to a surprising degree, actually, the sort of focus of his racially tinged attacks really hasn't been on blacks, right? It's been on Muslims and Latinos, as you were just saying. Do you think that's actually a departure? Is that sort of... It is a departure. I was thinking as you were asking the question, I guess part of it was the Latino, the growth in Latino population has happened in a 20-year period. But you had the the main leader of the Republican Party from 2000 to 2008 was a person who was from Texas, who was who knew, who spoke Spanish himself. George W. Bush was not some, who, someone who had campaigned already in a big Latino state. So he, to, to even become governor, couldn't have probably, well, maybe he could have, but he had chosen a different path for his political rise. So I think he was not well-primed to play racial politics. Politics against Latinos, and you had Obama in office, so Trump is the, you know. And he has a Latino sister-in-law, as you were sort of obliquely mentioning with Jack Bush. That's a good point. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, the Muslim issue is interesting because it's not clear to me that, you know, maybe Bush could have played, you know, the sort of Muslim ban card a little harder after 9-11. He sort of, you know, the the difference between Bush saying Islam is a religion of peace in the days after 9-11 and the way Trump talked about Islam. Yeah, I mean, Bush, within a month of 9-11, went to pray at a mosque, right? I mean, it's something that I don't think we appreciate enough. and Particularly now, right? Right, yeah. So I just think in the Muslim issue, that's like the Latino issue. I think Bush's whole biography has been doing that. But I think in the sense that compared to 2010 even or 2005, that the country is becoming majority minority, you know, whites are losing. I think that is more broadly shared. I think there's some political science that shows when you tell whites that they're going to be the minority very soon, their racialness increases and they become less. There's some political science that, that's a priming effect that does yeah, yeah, work. Yeah. So it tells me that there is some of these things are different because of where we are. But I think a lot of it is unique to 
And I guess we'd have to talk about were voter ID laws in the, you know, after Obama passed, was that a policy aimed at blacks just not announced as such? I mean, that's maybe the one thing we'd have to say. But I agree with you generally. He's done less welfare queen stuff. He does a little bit of Chicago is a, you know, Chicago yeah, is a code yeah. word. But he does less. Yeah, I think you're right. He's broadened it out. And the focus is not until the NFL stuff been really about blacks. This conversation is a really good sort of way of starting to think about some of the sort of big debate that's been going on about identity politics, right? Because I think that there's a bunch of things in the debate that I just don't understand. I mean, one of the things that I don't understand in the debate is that sort of by and large people who think no Americans aren't racist at all to caricature it also think that as soon as we talk about identity or race in politics at all, we're going to lose. But then on the other hand, you have people who basically say, like, the only way to understand America is as being, in its essence, sort of white supremacist. But they then also say, well, the way to win elections is to talk about identity all of the time, even for whites are still a majority in the country. And both of those stances just seem bizarre to me, right? I mean, it's got to be more complicated than that on both sides, because they're actually sort of the analysis and the prescription on each side seems to be at war with each other. Now, I think there's more subtle versions of both of those claims, right? But that's sort of the first thing that I'm confused about. So when you're looking at the state of people's views about those matters and the way in which, on the one hand, you know, obviously minorities are under attack in many ways. There's continuing deep injustices that existed even before Trump came into office. Obviously, now that Trump is in office, things are much worse. And it's clear that a any form of, not just progressive politics actually, but I would say a a politics that takes the principles of liberal democracy seriously, needs to come to the defense of minorities that are under attack. On the other hand, we've seen sort of the effectiveness with which racial priming does actually make people feel more racist, right? That when you tell them, you know what, the country is about to be majority minority, you know what, they actually become more racially resentful. So actually in some ways, there may be reason to think that the more we talk about some of those things the more people are actually primed to vote their ethnic self-interest, quote-unquote, rather than building a politics of commonality. So how do we navigate this space? This is a difficult subject in part because, like, I think Tanazigo says as well is, like, what the anti-Trump or the anti-authoritarian or what the anti or the Democrats or what have you, what those people should do to win the election is different than what is an accurate description of the country. In other words... Using the phrase white supremacist to describe things at times, like we have all these monuments of the Confederacy. If I were running for uh, governor in Virginia, for example, like where there's a full of Confederate monuments, Confederate monuments are surely a monument to white supremacy in a certain way. If I was a Democratic candidate for governor of Virginia, would I talk about that a lot? I don't think so. I think I try to talk about jobs and the economy and so on. So did a large mass movement called Black Lives Matter help Hillary Clinton win the election? I doubt it. I don't have a good data point for that, but I'm guessing that did not help her win the election. It sort of did. It was a huge racial priming effect. Were they making some accurate claims about race in America? Absolutely. And so the question becomes like, I, you wouldn't want Black Lives Matter to close because they are helping Donald Trump win. But I think you have to get to like the question about what is yeah. – there's a core tension here. So I'm struggling for a better term, but but for lack of a better term, it's the thing between sort of inside voice and outside voice. Right, right, right. right. Maybe so that's I'm, what it is. So, 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 so I'm not sure you, you have an inside voice in a world of Twitter and so on. But anyway, yeah. No, no, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but, but you're right that obviously I'm not saying that – and I mean, we have to be very careful that we don't start to say, well, you know, certain things are just sort of not really – 
acceptable in public discourse, so they're sort of strategically disadvantageous. Right. So let's not talk about them at all, and let's start to sort of warp our own thinking about certain issues because we know that if we came to a conclusion that acts, that would be bad for us electorally, so let's not even go there, right? That would be a big mistake, I agree. And certainly, I agree that it's very difficult to read studies of Confederate soldiers and so on, given their particular history and so on, when they were built and all of those kinds of things as anything other than a testament to, to a strand of white supremacy that obviously has always existed in US history and to some degree persists, right? So that's right. But I guess I want to say two things, right? I mean, the first is, what is the accurate reading of how deep white supremacy is in the United States today. And so I think that's one kind of debate, right? So obviously the strands of it, but how strong is it? Is it stronger than it was 20 or 30 years ago, which I think sometimes in the discourse around this, that's the unstated assumption, which which seems unlikely to me, for example, right? And then the other question is, okay, so let's definitely consider this podcast inside voice, right? Um, But let's think about the outside voice. Let's think about how do you build a politics in which people rally around something other than those things. And that's because, not because, you know what, we're not going to win otherwise and I care about the Democrats winning. It's because if you want to actually get rid of some of those injustices, you need to be able to win elections. I mean, Donald Trump being in the White House is very, very, very bad for anybody who wants to remedy those injustices. So you have to think about what is the right outside voice, even if you want to be really careful not to let that outside voice bleed into inside voice to such a degree that we lose our intellectual honesty in thinking about these issues. We had a conversation like this in New America a few weeks ago. So let me ask you a question first. What is this this sort of non-identity, post-identity campaign that you're describing? Who has ran one of these before? Barack Obama. I mean, maybe he had a good inside voice to reach African-Americans. You think he ran a, a non-racialized... So this is the other thing. I think there's a lot of character in this space, right? So... As I'm saying, I think defending people against discrimination and injustice is an essential part of any sensible policy. And that must include, obviously, acknowledging that the reason why they're being discriminated against is that, right? It's not just like, oh, you know, I really feel bad for the voters of Dayton County who just so happen to get a bad deal in terms of, you know, how long the lines are in front of the voting booth. Right. I mean, it's obvious that's by design because there's a lot of African-Americans there and they tend to vote for Democrats in, in high numbers. And for deeply cynical reasons, Republicans there are trying to make it as difficult for them to vote as possible. Right. So obviously, in talking about those things, you acknowledge that there is a deep history of racial injustice in the United States and that it still shapes things like how long you're going to have to wait in line to vote on Election Day in the United States today. Right. But there's a difference, I think. Let me ask, there was some, what was the difference between you know, Obama's campaign, Hillary Clinton's campaign? Let me ask that. That's my question. Maybe I don't understand that. Well, I, I, I think— I both of them talked about racial policy issues. So tell me what the difference between Obama and— Well, I think you know, this goes beyond race, but I think that one of the problems of the Clinton No, no, because we're on the racial issue. That's because what we're talking about here. What's no, 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 but, but, no, but, but I think it's a difference that includes the racial okay. difference, but there's also others, okay. right? And so one of them is that I think Obama had a real narrative about what the country was and what the country could be— all of us together. He told people, look, there are racial injustices. There are all of those things. But you know what? We Americans can be better than this. And we can rally together. And all of you can come and elect a black guy president with a funny name and you know, all of us, right? Because we have something in common as Americans and we can build a better future that's better for all of us. And yes, that future is going to be better for people who are discriminated against at the moment. Yes, I'm going to make sure that I fight for gay rights. Yes, I'm going to do those. But that is a part of a vision of a better America that appeals to everybody and includes everybody. I think what Hillary often did in the campaign was 
to say, okay, so in order to win, we need to assemble a demographic majority, which Obama also mostly wrote to win the presidency, sure. But the way I'm going to do it is that in each speech, I'm going to call out each of those groups. And I'm going to say, well, look, here's what I'm going to do for you if you're gay. Here's what I'm going to do for you if you're Latino. Here's what I'm going to do for you if you're a single mom. Here's what I'm going to do for you if you're black. And there was never a sense, not because she doesn't care about it, because rhetorically, for whatever reason, there was never a sense of here's what I'm going to do for you as an American. Here are the ways I'm going to bring us together as a country. And it seems to me that the way to effectively fight for the individual interests of particular discriminated against groups is, in terms of outside voice, to wrap it up into a narrative of here's a vision for all of us as Americans. And yes, that includes defending them and helping them. But it's it's a sub-element of this wider vision. And that's something that, in my mind, Obama had. I don't think Obama was any less passionate or effective at fighting for the rights of disadvantaged minorities, but, but he managed to make it a part of a vision for here's what it would look like for America to be a better country for everybody. And I think Hillary tried in certain ways to do that, but wasn't effective at doing that. And that is one of the things that made her campaign not as appealing. Uh, let me, I'm going to, okay. So I, I'm skeptical that Obama could have run his campaign after Black Lives Matter started. The start of the birther stuff, Black Lives Matter, the way Trump won. I'm skeptical you could have run the Obama campaign of 2008 and 2016 because of the other factors in the country had like accentuated all these, all this sort of direct racial talk. But I guess my point was initially was Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, Nixon. Most candidates we've had have had some identity politics stuff in their campaign. So I, I'm not sure how easy it is to run the campaign of Unum, you know, the E pluribus Unum, so to speak. I think Anne Marie was saying this at a few, something I was at a few weeks ago. I think that is less well done than we think, Rare, more rarely done than we think. That this kind of appealing to the country as a group, as one, while also acknowledging differences, is not easy. But my fear on the other side, and that may be true, right? I certainly agree it's not easy, yeah. right? And that's part of what made Barack Obama such right, a talented right. politician, right? So if he ran in 2016 with the Muslim banning, Mexicans are rapist guy running against him, and on the left, Black Lives Matter louder than ever, the Dreamers being much more aggressive than ever, I do you think he could have ran a 2008 style campaign with the events? I mean, it's hard to look at that. I don't think he would have had to adapt in certain ways, but yeah, I do think it would be okay. essential. That essential set of things, I think, would have worked, okay. was just to say yes. But I think that, 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 to me, is the sort of big question. And there, sort of inside and outside, those questions start to intermesh, right? I mean, yes. do you think that America is so deeply corrupt that you can never include minorities effectively under the basic principles that have animated, in an imperfect way, the American Republic for 250 years? I think if you think that... And if you think that the only thing you can do essentially is to do sort of the, the appeal to allied identity groups, then it becomes a numbers game. And for the next 30 years, those numbers are not going to look good. We've seen that white women, when there seems to be a certain amount of clash between the ethnic identity and the gender identity, at least in 2016, ended up going with the ethnic identity. They voted for Trump rather than Clinton. So how do you propose that Democrats are going to win if we don't believe in the ability of moving people beyond the sheer ethnic self-interest in elections? 
I mean, well, I mean, what percentage of whites voted for Hillary? 30, 40%, something like that. So it's obviously this, the country's not voting on pure ethnic terms already, right? Right. So I think 30, 25% of Latinos voted for Trump. I mean, it's, so it's, it's not clear to me that we were ever at that. I might think it's more simple that the Democrats maybe just have a need to have a better candidate next time and not run in the eighth year of a, of a presidency and they might win. Like, I think, oh, it, I agree with that. I think the yeah. election was held the day between Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump. Joe Biden would win. So I might. Um, and, and, and there's a huge difference, by the way, I think, in the kind of candidate that could yeah, win in 2016 I, and in 2020. This right? is maybe what I'm getting In 2016, right. people did not want a boring candidate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? right because right. they've had eight years of being ruled pretty well. Yes, yes. And they're still unhappy for all kinds of reasons, Right. Some of them understandable, the economic well-being hadn't improved that much and so on, right? And so they wanted someone to shake up the system. I think after four years of Trump, That's people are going to be so the sick of politics of that they'll just want to Joe Biden who's like boring and nice and pleasant and sort of, yeah. But I think your question, the inside voice, okay, so I guess what I might be saying is, I guess there was this piece in the Times the, the other day that I was that I thought basically was a sort of a review of Tanahazi's Coates's book, and the basic argument is like Tanahazi Coates is increasing by writing about race a lot is making white you know making whiteness more powerful and making whites think of themselves as white more. I'm not sure I have a great quarrel with Tanahazi Coates's work describing racial relations in America or so on. I, I don't I think he's to me. You know, I don't agree with every word he says, but he's, you know, if you look at the wealth gap or you between blacks and whites, particularly all these issues, I think he's describing a country that has that thinks it's further along on racial issues than it actually is. If you look at, you know, if you read the Kennedy book, the you know history of racist ideas, you get the same ideas that the country thinks it's on this sort of forward march, and each day it's improving on inequality issues. And I don't think that's really true. And I view this as like people like ta Coates and Jamel Bowie and professors and academics who are writing about race in a very blunt way and saying, we may like the rhetoric of white supremacy, but I think the idea of writing about that has an influence. Those are the people that are maybe have an influence and hopefully are being read by politicians on both parties who then can say, okay, I can't say this this way, but I... You know, my impression from having sort of covered him was that Obama maybe was more enthusiastic about sort of race relations in America that he never thought Donald Trump could win, for example. He was maybe more enthusiastic than was reality. And I think that my view is Tanazi Coates is playing a role of, in some ways, pushing back against a sort of racial optimism that people like I or people like the, the Obama had and that is sort of politically and societally useful. So the piece you reference is by Thomas Chatterton Williams, a black writer living in Paris at the moment. And I found it to be sort of interesting. I struggled with the essay. Um, no, I think but, it was interesting too. I agree with you, yeah. But what he certainly doesn't say is that we shouldn't be talking about race, right? I mean, he he says in the piece that, you know, he's been poring over colonial era writing and anti-colonialist writing and so on. He certainly thinks we should talk about race. And I think that's sort of an illusion that often happens in talking about identity politics, right? In the same way in which people say, well, if you don't want to do identity politics, you don't want to defend dreamers against getting deported, right? I think that's wrong. I think that's not exactly right. But let me quote a little bit from the piece and then let's let's try and make sense of what's going on here together, right? So, So Stratton Williams writes, such logic extends a disturbing trend in left of center public thinking, identity epistemology, or knowing through being, Somewhere along the line became identity ethics or morality through being. Accordingly, whiteness and wrongness have become interchangeable. The high ground is now accessible only by way of allyship, which is to say silence and total repentance. 
The upside to this new white burden, of course, is that whichever way they may choose, those deemed white remain this nation's primary actors. Given the genuine severity of a Trump threat, some readers of this essay may wonder, why devote energy to picking over the virtue and solidarity signaling of the left? Quite simply because getting this kind of thing wrong exacerbates the very inequality it seeks to counteract. In the most memorable sentence in The First White President, Mr. Coates declares, whereas his forebears carried whiteness like an ancestral talisman, Trump cracked the glowing amulet open, releasing its eldritch energies. I have spent the past six months poring over the literature of European and American white nationalism in the process interviewing noxious identitarians like the alt-right founder Richard Spencer. The most shocking aspect of Mr. Kutz's wording here is the extent to which it mirrors ideas of race, specifically the specialness of whiteness that white supremacist thinkers cherish. This, more than anything, is what is so unsettling about Mr. Kurtz's recent writing and the tenor of the leftist woke discourse it epitomizes. For it is not at all morally equivalent, it is nonetheless in sync with the toxic premises of white supremacism. Both sides eagerly reduce people to abstract color categories, all the while feeding off-off and legitimizing each other, while those of us searching for gray areas and common ground get devoured twice. Both sides mystify racial identity, interpreting it as something fixed, determinative, and almost supernatural. For Mr. Coates, whiteness is a talisman, an amulet of eldritch energies that explains all injustice. For the abysmus early 20th century Italian fascist and racist icon Julius Evola, it was a metabiological force, a collective mind spirit that justifies all inequality. In either case, whites are preordained to walk that special path. It's a dangerous vision of life we should refuse no matter what it's doing, conjuring. So that's probably a lot to take in, me sort of reading it off like that for listeners. So I'm not sure that I agree with Chatton Williams here, but what he's trying to say, I think, is that there is a way in which some of his discourse is in danger of rarefying categories of race in such a way that it takes on additional energy or that we lose out of sight the vision of a society that we want to build in its place. Do, do you think there's anything to that? I mean, I guess the core question that I think we're talking about is like, what does a politics look like that addresses racial and ethnic disparities, difference, discrimination, pick some other words, but also unifies people and brings them towards some common goal? How do you do those two things at the same time, right? Yep. I think that's what we're talking about here. Yep. So I think the answer is that I don't know the answer to that question. I guess I'm not convinced that more direct writing about like a piece about the case for reparations. I'm, I don't think Hillary Clinton should run on that, but I'm not sure that, you know, discussing it is necessarily. But, that's, but, no, 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 but, you're, but you're going back to saying that what Chatton Williams is arguing here is that we shouldn't be discussing it, right? That's what he's saying. He's not like Chatton Williams he's isn't saying Coates we shouldn't. His writing is all about policy and is, is mostly, to me at least, a lot about Trump and Paul. I think I, I guess I find I found his piece to be sort of like saying I agree with Coates on all the policy issues, but I don't like the way he writes about it. Is like I don't know what that means. It's just like. I guess it's fine to say I agree with all their goals, the Black Lives Matter goals on policing and Coates' goals on racial inequality and so on, but I wish he would say it differently. That's a fine argument, I guess, but it's not a very meaningful one. I, I wouldn't say it's like, yeah, I mean, I agree with the dreamers. I wish they were less aggressive about it. I wish that, you know, I, I'm not sure. Then we're talking about, talking about communication. That's fine. So in my mind, I think there's, there's a few things here, right? I mean, one is that that question of communication is important, right? I mean, it's it, is, important. it is an outside voice question, not an inside yes. voice question, right? But, We're asking but, the wrong but, people, but, though. Like writing a piece about a, a writer about whether he's communicating sure. to like the the, the Trump voter is not his 
If you want to write about Obama's, no, I don't think it's Coates' job. Coates' job is not his campaign that's what strategist. The piece was very focused on, you know, did no, Coates, I think, Coates unifying whites? Coates is not intending to do that. So, so look, let, let, me, let me say something sort of personal here, right? So, so I grew up Jewish in Germany, right? And obviously, that's certainly a history of racial injustice. I don't think that Jews are discriminated against today in Germany the way that African Americans still are in, in the United States. So there's an obvious disjunction there. I don't no, want to equalize I, yeah, those sure. two things. No, 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 we should. But I guess one of the reasons why I sort of get a little bit of what Chatterton Williams is getting at here, I think, or at least I, I, I think I do, um, that I grew up around people who sort of upper middle class Germans who tried so hard to prove to me how much they loved the Jews and how sorry they were for the past and how terrible the Holocaust was that they treated me really weirdly <laughs> and in a way that meant that I never felt German at all. I never felt like I could belong to that society mm-hmm. because what I wanted for them to do is to say, okay, you're Jewish. I'm not even religious at all. You know, what I want them to do is like, okay, you're just like us. Like I, I acknowledge that you're Jewish, but I don't care, right? We can go and deal with each other like any other people. And instead what they did was to make me being Jewish such a overwhelming aspect of who I am and to let it guide how they treat me to such a degree that they ended up being as creepy around me as racists in some ways, right? Uh, so and and now, now, I know that's a luxury problem, right? That's not a problem that people who are underprivileged and so on have, sure. right? But it does make me think about what society are we actually aiming to create, and part of that society is fighting against the hard injustices which go way beyond how does somebody talk to you or what is their tone of voice. But part of it is when we're actually dreaming about what society do we want, how do we make a society where that's not what's going to happen, where the society we actually end up in is one where we see what unites us and what we have in common rather than just what divides us and we're able to speak to each other like, like normal human beings, where we actually over time decrease the salience of some of those racial divides, not by pretending that the injustices aren't there, but because we both are managing to solve the injustices. And as we're starting to solve the injustices, we are able to relate more human to human and less race to race, quote unquote. So I've thought of this a lot. So, I'll, you know, this is a personal reflection. I'm black and, you know, since the audience may not know this, this is a podcast. So I, for example, you know, this is in a personal context, try to avoid jobs and I'm not criticizing people who do those jobs, but who enjoy jobs that are defined based on being black. I write about Congress and the president, but I write about racial issues when it's relevant the way I think everyone should. I try to, in some way, you know, I have a lot of jobs that maybe a white person or Latino person, Asian person could have too. And I find at times people do want to define you. We're looking for a mix of people. We're looking to have a diverse panel. We need you to be, you know, it's not stated, but we're looking for you to be the black person in this panel. And we're trying to figure out if you will be able to talk about Black Lives Matter and this because we need you in that. I don't like that sort of, we're getting into like diversity versus tokenism and so on. So and these are these are not new subjects. Yes, I want to live in a country that allows you to be who you are. And I do worry about some of the kind of, you can only speak about racial issues if you're not white. You can only speak about gender issues if you're a woman. You can only speak about Islam if you're a Muslim. I, I agree that that is 
not what we're looking for. We're like to me, I often tell my white colleagues where I work, I'd rather you write about this issue than me if it's a racial issue because we're trying to create the idea that whites have race, blacks have race, racial issues are complicated, they affect everyone. If we're going to write about that, let's not just, let's not make that a black job or a. So I'm, I agree with that kind of general premise. What I would say about creating that kind of world, which I think you and I have talked about, and we agree about. My worry is we tried it the Barack Obama way, and I would say the Perry Bacon way or the way a lot of the, you know, the Oprah Winfrey way or the Michael Jordan way. You get the, the sort of people – we've tried it that way, and I don't know if it worked. So I'm open to trying it a different way now that's more – the sort of like we don't talk about race. You know, I'm black. We're, we just come into the organization. We just work hard. We don't talk about race. We just put our head down, and you'll see that we're just as good too. I don't know that that's worked. So – I'm not excited about the sort of more aggressive use of the phrase white supremacy, but I'm open to – or not that phrase, but I just, the, the more race talk, we have a racial divide being sort of non – not talking about it didn't work. Maybe we should try talking about it and maybe we're – I agree. Maybe we're not at the right place now, but I'm open to like more racial discussion rather than less as a solution. But, but you see, I think – it keeps going back, and I think you keep going back to it because that's what the public debate keeps going back to, more or less. I don't think it's more or less, right? I mean, I'm all for making the fate of the dreamers, the, the, Sorry, the, the say- inside voice and outside voice, one of the main things we think about. I mean, it's an outrage if millions of people who came to this country as kids without any agency over the matter are going to be deported because of the decisions of their parents. That is, very quickly. Yeah. When I say more or less, what I mean is more direct, more fiery, I as see. opposed okay. to. So is that a distinction? That's the distinction I think we're. That's the pieces I think the distinction is like whether we're using the phrase white supremacy or not is I think a communications question, right? So I'm getting right, right, right. And, that's, and some people would say that's not a particularly useful way to talk about this. I'm not sure that it is or it isn't. I, I guess I would have been ten years ago. I would have said let's not. People maybe shouldn't use that phrase. I don't know how helpful that is. I'm not sure people understand what that means. I'm not sure that. Look, when we talk about studies to confederate soldiers, I'm happy to talk about white yeah, supremacy, yeah. right? So there I think the question more or less becomes, well, in what context is that the right and the helpful frame? And in what context is that actually both intellectually and strategically the wrong frame? And the answer I would give is I don't know, but I'm open to the argument that maybe it should be wider as opposed to narrower. And I think Ten years ago, maybe I wouldn't have been. So that's fascinating. What what do you think is a kind of thing where four or five years ago, if somebody said, well, that's white supremacy, you might have like rolled your eyes and be like, no, it's not. And now it's like, well, no, perhaps it actually is. And perhaps we should talk about it that way. Presumably like on Confederate soldier, presumably five years ago, you would have. Yeah, Confederate thing is the same. I don't think those monuments were built for a certain way and so on. I mean, I think a phrase like systemic racism in industry X whether it's technology or Silicon Valley or journalism or what have you. I think I would have been much more leery of using that phrase 10 years ago, but it's just hard for me to look at the data in Silicon Valley. And I know we can debate what Silicon Valley looks and how it should, but I think there are enough industries now where I'm skeptical that systemic racism sort of seems a little much at times, like some fields are like Silicon Valley is full of Asian employees. So it's like that maybe is a loaded phrase, but we could debate what that means. Yeah, I guess I'm saying, I think in terms of communicating about racial issues, I might be more inclined than, you know, I just, to be honest with you, 
you know, I think for me, at least I got in this mode of uh, police do weird things around me occasionally, but we just have a black president. So, you know, I must be <laughs> right, right, right. I must be exaggerating this a little bit in my head. You know, things are going well. He keeps saying things are going well. And then, you know, we got a lot of visual evidence for what I thought was going on, was going on. And so that might be what I'm saying is that am I making am I not convincing yeah, you? No, the no, case no, I'm no, making no, that, is that makes not sense. Yeah. that we should be I'm as worried as you are about some of the what I feel like is a um, – I find that people who are white are more nervous about talking about racial subjects with me than 10 years ago. And I find that oh, they're that's worried about they – they know that they're more curious, but they're also more worried about saying the wrong thing than 10 years ago. And I don't like that because I, I do think I want to be able to talk to everybody. And I do that – I do think that some of the – the culture around racial issues is tense right now in a way where people are nervous, even in their personal relations. I agree with I think that's part of the broader issue that I think is problematic. And I don't know how you deal with that as a systemic issue without – what am I trying to say? I guess I don't want to water – yeah, I guess I, – but I think we're getting at core questions. It was the difference is you're talking in this – I know what this podcast is about is like how do we – how do the people who are the anti-populists stop this sort of rise of dangerous populism? Right, right. And I think – I'd be curious about how Joe Biden talks about racial issues is probably a better model for how to win elections than how Keith Ellison does, right? I'm not denying that for – and I like Keith Ellison. I respect him. I'm not trying to make a comment about him. Yeah, the question of inside voice, outside voice, writers versus politicians, because everyone is hearing everything. It's like Colin Kaepernick kneeling is an issue that if it was an NFL only issue would be different than if it's an issue where the vice president and the president are away. Right, right. I'm not sure if the NAACP head, if you ask them, they would say, of course, we agree with him kneeling. Was that the best strategy to move right, right. police to I don't think they'd be in private. I'm not sure in their inside voice. They might be like, mm. You know, I think there is a real question about we're in this world where inside voice things can become outside voice. Am I making that? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. yeah of course. Well, it's a world of Twitter and all of those yeah, things. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's very yeah. difficult to have any conversation that doesn't. I mean, look, I, I don't know if we've sold anything today, but we're but pretty I think close. But, Do you agree with me? I think we're fairly close. Yeah, I don't think we disagree on yeah, in a fundamental yeah. way at all. But but yeah. I think more importantly. I think we've modeled something. Even if we haven't answered the questions, I think we've modeled the kind of conversation that we should be having across the political spectrum, from the sort of far left to moderate conservatives, not including white nationalists, because they, they <laughs> shouldn't be part of the conversation. We don't want them to be part of the conversation. But, but I think we have genuine questions, both of us, about this issue, and we've tried to puzzle through those. And um, I think we've made a little bit of progress. But that ability to have that conversation in an honest way and to assume of each other we have a best of intentions. I think that's important, yes. And for me not to assume that because I – like I've tried this – I don't want to praise myself, but I assume you have <laughs> thought about racial issues in the same way that I have even though I – I mean even though I'm black in, in America you know, and you're not. I assume that you might have something to tell me about it, which is important I think. Yeah. So, well, I don't know if that's the best way of ending the podcast, but we're going no, to end no, it. Sorry, no, I'm joking. It yeah, so you should cut that part off. Thank, thank you. For, no, 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 we'll keep yeah. it there. I'm, I'm, no. But, no, but I think um, I think it's great and we'll, we'll, we'll both keep talking about it hopefully over beers and so on over the next months and then we can – Come back on the podcast and tell everybody the grand, logical, <laughs> easy solutions we've come to. Hey, this is great. I this has been a really good conversation. I'm Thank you so much it. for being here, Perry. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Start an online merchandise store with Good Fight t-shirts and sweatshirts and 
tote bags. I actually, really, I, I, would, I would love it if somebody did that. Um, and finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.